welcome to the Clemson Dubcast. It is Miami week as Clemson prepares for the final two games of the regular season at TigerIllustrated.com up late this week. Examining the screen game, a topic that is uh, a source of consternation, I think, among uh, quite a few Clemson fans. My take on it is it's way more complicated than maybe most folks think in that there are so many things that are tied to the screen game. So quite often a successful running play is in part the product of the defense's focus on that screen action, if that makes any sense. Maybe it doesn't to some people, but it does to me. Anyway, digging deeply into that at TigerIllustrated.com. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning, way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold based in Greenville. They are Clemson people, and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse, and neglect car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation at Parm Smith and Archenhold, call 864-990-4581 or online at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full-service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading-edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. Football season is grilling season, and Jack Oliver's Pool Spa and Patio is South Carolina's premier source for the big three. Weber, Traeger, and Big Green Egg Grills. Blackstone Griddles, too. I'm Jack Oliver. Grill all your tailgate favorites to perfection with a premium gas, charcoal, or pellet grill, then top it all off with something sizzling from your Blackstone griddle. For grills, griddles, patio furniture, hot tubs, and saunas, shop in store or online at Jack Oliver's Pool Spa and Patio, Forest Drive in Columbia, and jackoliverpools.com. I'm Josh Burrell, receiver and running back for the Florida State Seminoles. When I'm back home in the Midlands, I enjoy grilling and relaxing with my family, and we get everything we need from Jack Oliver's Pool Spa and Patio. Thanks, Josh. I'm Jack Oliver, and we proudly offer the Big Green Egg, Weber, and Traeger Grills, Blackstone Griddles, and beautiful patio furniture, too. We're located at 3303 Forest Drive in Columbia and online at jackoliverpools.com. And we deliver. They're good people. Go see them today. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union? If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Matt Gross is a proud Clemson alum and the vice president for the Clemson market for Founders Federal Credit Union. Matt's office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, Go to foundersfcu.com. Okay, checking in with the situations in Tampa at South Florida in the wake of Jeff Scott's firing and also in Norman in the midst of a 5-5 five and five season so far in year one under Brent Venables. We will start in the Sunshine State. Here we go. Okay, joined by Matt Baker of the Tampa Bay Times College Football Reporter. How you doing, Matt? Thank you for joining us. 
course. Thanks for having me on. Okay. First of all, I guess um, the, the 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 first reason that I uh, wanted to get in touch with you was um, <clears throat> just seeing what it's like boots on the ground um, at South Florida and Tampa. What what has been the I don't know if fallout is the right word, but just the reactions to uh, Jeff Scott's tenure and then him getting let go, I guess, 11 days ago. Well, I I mean, it needed to happen. I think that was pretty clear. Uh, USF did not want to get rid of him. Let let me make that just as say say as plainly as I can. This wasn't something that they wanted to do. Look, Jeff was was and is extremely well-liked in the building. I, I don't think I've met a person who will say a bad thing about him as a human being. And I think a lot of us who are in the industry know that coaches are not exactly saints, right? This is not a profession of, of those type of people. So for everyone to speak so highly of Jeff and his character says something. Um, the other thing, just leading up to his dismissal and, and the weeks leading up to it, really the East Carolina game on October 1st is when it really became clear that this might not end well. Um, you know, he, they were not doing particularly well before then. Um, but you know, you can excuse the, all right, you lose a close one at Florida. Well, Florida's a lot more talented. You can, you can get that by, uh, got getting thumped by Louisville. That, that wasn't good, but Louisville's a better team. Okay. You can, you can excuse that. Then getting just destroyed at East Carolina, which is not exactly like an AAC power. That was when it really started to like, okay, this, this, the writing's kind of on the wall here, but talking to people after that, they were still in Jeff's corner because, again, he's a good dude. And then just everything else that comes with being a football coach, right? So uh, his players stayed out of trouble. I think, generally speaking, he upgraded the talent, uh, especially through the transfer portal. That, at one point, was the highest-ranked uh, transfer class in the country. Um, the kind of shaking hands, kissing babies, getting attention, which is something that this program needs in this market, and then just the fundraising aspect. Uh, USF has been trying to get an indoor practice facility for a long time. They just started using it last week because of the push that Jeff made. Um, they've been talking about an on-campus football stadium since before the school even started. And it's on, you know, it's in the works still, but a lot of that is because of the push that Jeff helped, helped make with fundraising. So he was doing everything right, except for the scoreboards and standings. And, and after a certain point, you know, the Temple game, it became clear, like, okay, that this isn't going to work out and they had to make a change obviously can we go a little bit inside baseball for a minute i'm just curious Mm -hmm. um i'm kind of refreshed that a lot of my listeners and subscribers actually are interested in the sports writing (laughs) business and and the the process uh of of various media folks i'm curious so a couple years ago when jeff got the job joey knight uh was the guy covering the bulls Mm -hmm. and we had him on for a podcast when did that he's now covering the bucks uh when did that transition take place and i'm curious just as a reporter how did you go about when you when you did take over south florida just a little maybe some inside uh, sort of insider type insight uh on how do you go about starting a relationship with with the new with with jeff scott and folks in the building and how did that go and it sounds like he was very very approachable from a media standpoint down there when he was there. Extremely approachable. So I guess it would have been in 2020 is when we kind of transitioned Joey Moore to Bucks, just some other, you know, moving pieces in the newsroom. He ended up moving over there and 
for it happened during the season, if I remember right. So we kind of just hodgepodge USF. Just let's just get through the season and, and re reevaluate. And, uh, and last year I was there some, uh, but we also used, you know, Joey would be out on occasion. Of course, fun. It would be out on occasion, just kind of depending. Cause it, cause in my role, I cover state college football as a whole for the Tampa Bay times, mm-hmm. because yes, USF is in the, is in our backyard. It's 20 minutes from my house. Gainesville's two hours away. Tallahassee is four. Miami's four and change. Um, but this is, you know, if I had to pick one, the Gators are the most uh, are the most interest to the average fan here in the Tampa Bay area. So I need, we need to to recognize that and work accordingly. Um, but it's not like I had never been around USF. I'd been around on occasion. Um, so it was just a matter of showing up more, right? Like half of <laughs> half of uh, every business it seems just showing up and putting in the work and by showing up and putting in the effort and, and asking hopefully intelligent questions. Uh, I, I think I got to develop a pretty good relationship with Jeff. And um, again, he was, he is extremely approachable. I texted him after, uh, after he got fired on what was that Sunday and he responded pretty quickly. Um, and I, I'm not saying that to like pump my own, you know, to my sure. own about what a great relationship I ever would agree reporter I am. It's, believe me, it's not that that's just him. Because I've reached out to plenty of coaches, uh, you know, just not the first coach I've covered who's gotten fired. Odds are he won't be the last. Um, and, and most of the time you just don't never hear anything. And, and that's fine. I, I get it. So for Jeff to respond within a couple hours and, and, and you know, just to exchange well wishes and that sort of thing it says a lot about who he is. Because that was obviously a very tough day for him and his family and something that I, I do not envy. But he was still able to try and put on a professional and a somewhat smiling face as a reporter who covers a number of different football programs in the state i gotta think it's a lot different with usf because they don't have that ravenous uh interest uh in in what they're doing and so i guess that might that might uh sort of translate to media um, access in terms of Florida, Miami, Florida State. Well, I guess it didn't really apply to Florida State because Norvell is so wide open when it comes to access. But I guess what I'm speaking of is just the general sort of message control and, um, you know, steering, you know, trying to limit access uh, with, with big-time programs in general versus South Florida where they kind of they kind of need the coverage. Is, am I, do I have a uh, is that assessment pretty accurate as far as the, the dynamics, the, the the differences between the South Florida and, and the other big time programs in the state? Yeah, there, there's definitely something something to that, and, and it's more so about I, I learned it's more so about the coach than it is mm. about the program, just because every coach is different. You know, the the one that always comes to mind is who you can talk to, right? Um, some coaches do not let you talk to freshmen. Period. End of story. Um, the example I always use, this was Florida in 2015. Uh, they beat Tennessee on, uh, you know, I'm just thinking a 63 yard touchdown pass on fourth and 18 or whatever, um, from Will Greer to Antonio Callaway with, you know, men and change left, just a fantastic play. One of the great plays in the history of the Florida Tennessee rivalry, which is one of the best in, in, in the Southeast. And I remember going down to post game afterwards to, to do interviews and I'm thinking, okay, uh, there's been a quarterback battle at this point. So we haven't been able to talk to a quarterback since the start of preseason camp. So I'm probably not going to be able to talk to the guy who threw the 63 yard touchdown pass guy who caught it is Antonio Callaway. He's a true freshman, true freshman. Don't talk. <laughs> so I'm probably not going to be able to talk to the guy who caught the 63 yard touchdown pass. 
so what am I doing here? And they, they did make the quarterback available afterward, but you know, we didn't get to talk to the receiver who again had this sensational play uh, until, you know, that the next spring or whatever it was. And I, I'm not belly aching because, you know, poor reporter. No, it's not that it's, it's unfortunate because that means fans could not hear from the guy who had this game winning sensational play. And um, so I say that to say, it just depends. Um, you know, Billy Napier at, at Florida was his, his camp was extremely open in the spring. I mean, we, we, he let us talk to just about everybody in the building because he, he wanted them to get some, some limelight and then think, then it gets shut down. And it's, it just depends on, on the, on the, this uh, school to some degree and also the coach and just how open they want to be. But your general point is right. USF would love the coverage. Absolutely. Because again, they are at best the number two team college team in this market. And then you've got the bucks, you got the Rays, you got the lightning, so, you know, at best, they're the number five team uh, in, in the area, probably six or so tied with Florida State. So they, they're in a situation where they need the attention and want it. On the general level of access, on one hand, I get that we're just in a different time than, say, 1985, you know, when um, where now if you let a bunch of people into every one of your practices, you know, you do stand – uh, some risk of uh, you know somebody going hey they're running they're running this uh, zone read RPO to the short side of the field eighty percent of the time you know like you don't right. want to sabotage yourself but on the other hand I've yet to hear any coach after a loss say yep we let those media guys in on Monday and uh, you know for for our stretches and that's what cost us the game I have to think that as we we move pretty quickly toward you know in the nil world probably um collective bargaining world i would think <laughs> sometime in the near future it, it seems like that's inevitable as we move toward you know the super conference um arrangement where even to date the college football playoff is really open access you get to talk to anybody you want to mm-hmm. and the nil thing with the branding uh you don't want to be seen as the coach who is limiting your player's opportunity to brand themselves. So I, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I think the access is only going to increase, uh, as, as this, as this thing goes into a world that it's really hard to predict in general, uh, with, with, uh, NIL, the portal and all that. Yeah, you, you definitely might be right. I have not seen that yet. And I think maybe it's just NIL is too, is too new, relatively speaking. Um, and then also it depends on what we mean by NIL, right? Are we talking about uh, the situations where it's NIL, wink, wink? Or are we <laughs> talking about the legitimate thing with advertisements and, and social media posts? And, and you know, I understand how the business works. I'm not bemoaning it. I'm just saying let's, let's have real talk here. So um, I think it's just going to depend on how that shakes out. But I could certainly see a situation where somebody says, look, I want to go get my you – know, I want to get paid for what I do. And I need to be out there more. And some of that I can do on social media, but some of it, if I can be, you know, on, on TV more, if I can be uh, talking in press conference, I can get played on ESPN and I can be in some of the largest news outlets in the Southeast and, and, and what have you. Yeah. There there's, that's a branding opportunity that's missed. I, I haven't seen a situation yet where, you know, the quarterback Anthony Richardson at Florida, right. He just recently got a Gatorade deal. He didn't like, come into the press conference on whatever day that was with a thing of Gatorade and like taking a sip from it and pointing at it. There hasn't been anything like that yet, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if that comes. It, am I, 
am I off if I say that Jeff almost had an unwinnable situation because you go to a place that has had some distant success, uh, you know, back under, under in the Levitt days, but has had almost none of late. You have a place whose infrastructure, as you pointed out, was in great need of, of, of revitalizing. And now we're in this NIL world. I, I'm guessing that they don't have a big war chest for, for uh, NIL deals even, and maybe even at a dis. I actually have heard that they were at a significant disadvantage even compared to schools such as East Carolina and Tulane. And so I'm, I'm just curious, if, if, you, if Nick Saban would have gone into that situation, would he have had great struggle turning it around in terms of the, of, of the results in that small amount of time? So there, there's, there's two things here, and, and both can be true at the same time. One is that USF has a lot of issues, and they've had a lot of issues. Look, this is still a fairly young program. I think this is their 26th year of playing college football. So for them to go from zero to you know one of the top G5 conferences, went to number two in the country, had a couple top 25 finishes in 26 years, that's pretty good, right? That, that absolutely is. Um, and then, so that so the the youth is is one factor that nobody controls. Um, the, the facilities have been lagged behind. I mean, again, they just opened the indoor practice facility. I'm not a big facilities guy. I, I think a lot of the um, buzz around them is overrated. But in Florida, I'm here to tell you, it rains like every day from June ish through September. So not having an indoor practice facility is a major, major, major disadvantage, mm. uh, just on a practical level. Mm-hmm. So that was something that he was battling and that, you know, they took steps to fix. And for, for the success that USF has had, they've never won their conference ever. Um, so let's, we, and, and, you know, Jeff kind of pointed this out, the coaches that were here in the past, they were pretty well regarded. And then, then they came here and most of them didn't get it done. So there are some systemic issues at USF that Jeff walked into in terms of fan interest and what have you. And then the COVID year and all that stuff. I think they had had injuries to like twenty something guys who would have been players this year, um, including starting quarterback and then the backup quarterback. So they had some some serious issues Jeff did not control. However, they were down. I think it was forty one nothing or forty one seven to East Carolina. Yeah, that and it wasn't the the first time that they were in a major deficit like that. I mean, BYU scored a seventy five yard touchdown the first play of scrimmage. Yeah. Um, the, the, the temple game that they, they fell behind. I mean, it, it's a situation where they were so ill-prepared. Uh, they were one of the first worst first half teams in the country last year, and they were just as bad, if not worse, this year, especially early on. So they, they again, they fought hard, and the culture was there and all that stuff, and that's great. But at the end of the day, when you're consistently falling behind, not just by seven, but by 21 and 24 and everything, I I have to think that's preparation. Mm. It's preparation. And they, you know, USF was somewhere in the sixties this year in terms of talent, according to the, the two, four, seven composite and, and SP plus, they were like 110, 100, 100, 110. So there's a huge gap between what their potential is and what they were doing. And again, some of that's systemic, some of it's injuries, some of it's bad luck, but a lot of it is coaching too. And, you know, I, I hate to put it bluntly, but it, there were times when the staff just looked over its head and that was something that fans had a really hard time getting past. And so I guess it, to button it up, yes, there are systemic issues with USF, 
but also the staff didn't help itself. It sounds like it was handled in a really classy way from both sides, from Michael Kelly and uh, Jeff. I know that Michael, when he hired Jeff, thought the world of him. And it doesn't sound like that really changed, even though the results on the field didn't, you know, didn't uh, produce what, what was desired. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, Michael's was somebody at a press conference characterized uh, a reporter characterized Jeff's tenure as a disaster. And, and Michael took umbrage to that and, and defended it and said, look, you know, we, the record speaks for itself, but this wasn't a disaster because we did X, Y, and Z. Then afterward, he was pretty adamant. Like he, he took offense to it. And, and I understand why. And he, so he wasn't just, it wasn't just bluster. Right. I think he very much still thinks very highly of Jeff. And I think that's pro- that feeling it's probably mutual, although I understand there were there were going to be some hard feelings there for a bit. That's completely understandable. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of Will Muschamp at Florida when that didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, Will Muschamp is still well-liked by the people in, in the building in, in Gainesville, just as a, a human, just as a good dude. People really liked him, and that honestly bought him another year at Gainesville. But the results were, you know— Everybody could look at the scoreboard. Everybody could look at the standings. And it doesn't matter how great a guy you are and whether your kids go to class and all that stuff. If you keep losing it, that, that's the only thing that matters. And that's a situation Muschamp found himself in with the Gators in South Carolina later. And it was the same thing with, with Jeff Scott at USF. You mentioned uh, opening with BYU, and that sort of brings me to something else that has to be asked. I mean, looking at okay, back in back in 20, they play – Notre Dame, uh, this is, you know, non-conference. Uh, Notre Dame, then uh, in 21, didn't they play Texas? Or they were, let's see, they were, they were supposed to, I'm sorry, I thought they were going to play Texas at one point. They, they were they were going to, and I think it was in 20. Okay, that 20, got, that's right. Got changed because of COVID. Okay, all right, then in, in uh, 21, NC State, Florida, BYU, uh, then this year, BYU, Florida, Louisville. What in the the question? What in the hell are they doing with that type of schedule? I mean, that is a huge, a huge anchor uh, for a, a, a program that's trying to pull itself off the mat. Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, you have to remember when a lot of these games were scheduled too. Um, I mean, I remember talking to Dan Mullen when Florida scheduled the, the series with USF, it's a, a two for one. Um, and at the time, Charlie Strong was there and USF had just been pretty good, right? They had back to back top 25 seasons. And at that point you're thinking, yeah, we, we can hang with some of these guys. Yeah. And, and there's a recruiting boost that comes with playing at Florida and having Florida come to town. Um, and, and, you know, I think they've got a series with Miami down the line, if I remember right. And, and, and that sort of thing as well. So you can understand that. And obviously there's the financial component too. Let's not, let's not poo poo that. Um, I, I, so I think unfortunately the way the schedule broke USF, when a lot of these things were scheduled, thought they were on the way up where it wouldn't be crazy to think they could beat an NC state or a hang with NC state. And then the bottom fell out of the program where, you know, Five years ago, you could think they would have hung with Louisville. And this year, the way the injuries happen and just the, the way the roster was and everything else, they end up losing by 38. So I, I don't necessarily – I understand the criticism of the scheduling model. I don't think at the time it was the wrong thing. It's just that it very clearly did not work out and very clearly 
kept USF from being able to build at a time when they needed to build. Yeah, and in fairness, I, 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 I totally see that. And to be fair, it is it just has to be the, the scheduling thing, particularly when the the scheduling routine is to do it so far years in advance. It's got to be so difficult for a program like that that's back and forth. I mean, even NC State, I think their model is basically, yeah, we're going to bring in some tomato cans uh, because we want to go to a bowl every year, you know? And so I, I see what you're saying. I also see why when Jeff got there and he looked at the schedule, he's probably like, yeah, we need to try to get, get out of some of these games because that is just brutal for a, a program that's in the ditch. But but again, they, they weren't in the ditch and USF should not be in the ditch, right? Like I, I talked about the systemic issues and, and those are very real. Believe me, I, I see them. I talk to people. They, there are systemic, there are problems. But look at what USF is. They're one of the fastest growing programs or uh, schools in the country. Um, they've gone from nothing to a couple top 25 seasons in 26 years. They're located in one of the four biggest recruiting states in the country in one of the biggest recruiting areas in the, the Tampa and I-4 corridor in the country. Um, so there's no reason, and, and especially what the American is going to be when, when UCF and, and, and Houston and Cincinnati leave, there's no reason USF can't be one of the premier group of five mid-major programs in the country. And we've seen flashes of it in the past. So if you view yourself, this is who we should be, then there's no harm in scheduling the NC States and, and BYUs. You punch up and maybe you get one of them and it's a big deal. If not, you should still be able to run through your schedule and, and make it to a bowl, maybe even a nice one. It's just that for a bunch of reasons, they haven't gotten to that point or haven't been at that point here in the last couple of years. That's good perspective because as easy as it is for somebody like me on the outside, just to assume they've been in total shambles uh, since 2007 or whenever that was, just while you were talking, I look up the recent records and before Jeff's arrival, it was uh, in 2019, four and eight, but in 2018, seven and six, 2017, 10 and two, 2016 11 and 2. So yeah, that's a that's a fair fair pushback on that notion that they were just a uh, a total a total wreck. Um can I ask you about Miami since the Hurricanes are coming up sure. to Clemson um this Saturday? Really interesting uh choice of words that we've heard from not just Cristobal uh, in recent weeks but also uh, the offensive coordinator Josh Gaddis. They are not shy about calling out their players for lack of buy-in. Basically saying, I think after the Duke game, he said, if you don't want to play hard, then leave. Uh, just, I think, either yesterday or the day before, he was asked, uh, Cristobal was asked about uh, players' parents popping off on social media about the assistance, and he said, well, if they don't like it, they can come pick their, guy, pick their kids up. <laughs> I'm just not used to hearing that. I guess one interpretation could be they're trying to market their uh, market their program to people in the transfer portal and to recruits because they're basically saying, yes, we are flipping our roster and we're putting a, a sign out uh, saying all interested apply. Is that your view of it or what? what's your interpretation of this as Cristobal tries to undertake the massive task of turning this big ship around? I think some of it is just trying to get the culture established um, because, I mean, Miami's sleeping giants not right but look they've underachieved for the past 20 years right yeah. there's there's no reason they should be as mediocre as they've been since 01 and you know they had the, the nice season in 17 until they got 
truck by Clemson, I think it was 38 to three in Charlotte. Um, but they've got some serious issues where they're, they have consistently underachieved in terms of the talent that they bring in and what the result has been on the field. And one of the easiest explanations is the guys aren't playing hard enough. And I think there's probably something to that. And with Mario and just his work ethic and the way he's built and what he's what he's you know what he knows from being an assistant at Bama under Saban to what he did at Oregon, it, it's kind of the blue collar thing. And we're going to work extremely hard, and that's how we're going to build it up. You know, and when you talk to people who were around the U when they were building it up in the '80s and '90s and into the to '01, that's one thing that they talked about that they stress a lot is how hard they worked. So I understand trying to kind of set that expectation. And we're in charge here. This is the way it's going to be. And it needs to be different because the results aren't acceptable. Um, and I do also think it's true that they are going to change, you know, turn over that roster a lot. Um, I, I think that the portal makes that easier than ever. And honestly, it's the same thing that's going to happen with, with Billy Napier up in Gainesville. They've already had a handful of, I think it's seven off the top of my head, plus or minus a couple. But Florida's already had a handful of players who were either dismissed or asked to leave, or had to take time off, or are entering the portal, or have entered the portal, uh, just really since, what, September? And it's going to be a very busy offseason up there, and I think that's the way both those guys are trying to do it, where you know, we, we inherited a situation, it was not what we wanted, so we're going to take a little bit of time, and, and we, we know where the issues are, and we're going to get rid of them, and we're going to start building it up the right way. I have been optimistic about previous Miami coaches, and they have gone on to fail. But it feels like Cristobal. The parallel that I draw is with um, is with Florida State under Norvell, in that there were signs early on that you could see in the body language, in sort of just the overall operation of things, where you're saying, "Okay, this looks different," and this looks like they're on an upward trajectory, even if the results aren't really screaming that yet. Am I off base for having the same feeling about Cristobal, even though they've been a, mostly a mess this season? So I'm going to be a little, my, my view, vantage point is colored because the, the only game I've seen from them in person this year, they got trucked by Florida state 45 to three and it didn't feel that close. Um, so they, they've got serious issues. Yeah. Um, Honestly, I, I came into this year thinking Cristobal was the guy and could do it. And, and it's way too early to give up on him. Um, but I do have some questions. And, and the Norvell comparison is interesting, and I don't think it's wrong or unfair. Norvell had, in some ways, a better track record, though. You, you look at what he did at Memphis, where you know he, he took over a program that was in good shape with, from, from Justin Fuente and then sustained it. And, and they were very good. They were one of the best in, in, in the group of five. And you could see that success that he had. Mario did well at, at Oregon, no question. But there were major questions about him as a game manager. You know, mm-hmm. How do we approach the red zone? What do we do on third and four? That type of stuff. When do we use our timeouts? The, those things that separate the, the good teams from the great ones once you have the talent. And, and to me, those questions have only intensified this year, um, just the way the games have played out themselves. So – Look, I, I thought Mario was a great hire. If I would have taken him at Florida, if if I would have been the AD, he would have been my first call. Uh, just because he, he can do all of the program building. I, there's no question in my mind about that. But can he do the actual stuff on a game day that will upset a number 10, you know, a number nine Clemson team? Or uh, that will separate you from a North Carolina team that's really plucky? 
that type of stuff. And, and to me, those questions have only intensified this year. What was your take on Dan Radakovich leaving Clemson for Miami at the time that it happened? And what is your sort of feeling on that right now, his, his leadership and, 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 and what his challenge is as an AD down there? Yeah, I thought that was a great hire from Miami, just because Dan obviously helped build Clemson into one of the two or three best programs in the country. Um, and, and just all these stuff that goes into it. And he understands what it takes. And to me, you know, my, my thing with coaching hires is everybody makes a bad one, right? Alabama has missed on, on people before. It, one bad coaching hire, okay, that happens. Two or two in a row, two, two close to each other, eh, maybe that's a little bit unlucky. But, you know, that happens. Three in a row, four in a row, three or four, pretty close proximity. Maybe it's not the coach. Maybe the program is the problem. And it's hard to look at Miami post-2001 and, and the coaches that all failed there or had a little bit of success and then failed and not say, yeah, maybe the hires weren't great. But that many bad hires in a row or unsuccessful hires in a row, there's a program issue. And Miami, when they when – they, paid Mario a zillion dollars. And when they brought in Radakovich, that to me was a sign that, okay, these guys know what the issue is. They, they know that a lot of the issue is not the coaches. It's Miami. And if we're going to get back to where we're supposed to be, we got to fix that. And I think Dan knows what it takes to get there. Um, they're, they're talking the right thing in terms of facilities and we'll see when that shakes out and how that happens. Um, but they're, they're starting to do some of the behind the scenes stuff that, you know, it's not going to show up, uh, this weekend on the scoreboard, but it might show up in a year or two down the line. And if Miami is going to get back to where Miami thinks they should be and probably where they should be, those things have to be in place. Last question, if you don't mind, uh, Clemson won a national championship down in Tampa at Raymond James six years ago, mm-hmm. won another one in 2018. Uh, they were an absolute powerhouse and right there with Alabama. Now a bit of a dip, um, three losses last year. This year, kind of, uh, not really sure what to make of them. What do you make of Clemson, sort of from a distance right now? Yeah, you, the, uh, the 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 national title game in Tampa is one that I will never forget. Um, you know, I, I've covered a handful of title games over the years, but doing the one twenty minutes from my house was awesome. Um, <laughs> you know, my 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 wife was uh, nine months pregnant, eight and a half months pregnant, so we had had conversations about. Uh, what happens if she goes into labor that day? We, we kind of decided if, <clears throat> if I'm at the stadium, I stay at the stadium. But if it's beforehand and we audible, you know, my, my kid did, his, did the right thing and, and stayed in for another three weeks. Um, <laughs> one, one other real quick, real quick tangent, and then I'll actually answer your question. So my wife and I decided we weren't going to tell people what we were going to name. I mean, we knew it was going to be a boy. We had decided what we're going to name, but we, we were, we we're just going to keep it a secret. So when people asked during football season, what are you going to name your kid? Well, we'd say, you know what? It's, we're going to name him after whatever coach wins the national title. In Denver. <laughs> um, Nick and Jimbo and, and whatever. Well, um, it, we, obviously we didn't name him Dabo, but, uh, your listeners probably know Dabo's real name is William, right? Uh, well, William is my middle name. Uh, my grandpas both have William in their name. My uncle has William in his name. William is a name that we had picked out. So that's awesome. That's, and my son is William. Uh, it's not because of Dabo, <laughs> but that, that is, it just happened to be a fantastic coincidence. Um, so your actual question, um, Clemson is weird. 
because you know, I saw them play Florida State, and I left thinking they're a pretty good team, and they absolutely are. Um, you know, you don't. I, I know the way things shook out, and Florida State kind of made it interesting, but at no point really did I think FSU was going to win. And I had underrated Clemson a little bit um, because I think we've I've been judging them based on. Deshaun Clemson and yeah. Trevor Lawrence Clemson, and they're not there. Clemson fans have the but, same problem. Yeah, but they're still good. Yeah, they're still very right, good. Right, they're, they're absolutely a top ten team. If they if they win out, they should absolutely be in the playoff. Uh, in the, in the, excuse me, in the playoff conversation, um, but maybe not get in. And there's nothing wrong with being a team that's between five and ten in the country. That's that's good for almost everybody. Um, unfortunately for Clemson, that's not the expectation at this point. And I, I honestly, I think it's as simple as Clemson won with two transcendent quarterbacks. Uh, Deshaun is one of the best players I've ever seen in, with my own eyes. I didn't get to see Trevor in, in, in person, unfortunately, but, um, so you win with two just transcendent quarterbacks. And then when you don't have one of those guys, you're just really good. And yeah. I'm here to tell you that's the same way it is almost everywhere else. Georgia's not at that level now right now because they're just they got so many dudes all over the place. Alabama's not either, right? Where they've had so many dudes all over the place. But for aside from those two, that's pretty much where you are. If you got a, a great great quarterback, you got a chance to win a national title. Otherwise, being in that 5 through 10 conversation every year, almost everybody takes that. And it's almost just to add to that the stars aligned in a special way for Clemson from 15 to 20 in that it wasn't just the absolutely extraordinary occurrence of having not one, but two generational quarterbacks come along, but it was also, you know, Mike Williams, who wasn't a five-star acquisition. Hunter Renfro absolutely was not (laughs) highly regarded. It was getting not just big time defensive linemen, but generational defensive linemen such as Christian Wilkins and and Dexter Lawrence. Um, and so you're conditioned to that being sort of the standard, but it's really not. And I think even Alabama's going through that right now because they're not what they once were at receiver um, and probably even uh, on the defensive line and maybe in the secondary. And that's why Nick Saban has had to go into the portal the last few years is because they've had some – they just haven't had they, – they've had the – talent on paper in terms of star ratings and all that stuff but the stars align for them in a special way too with Devonte smith and jerry judy and rugs and just that laundry list of elite receivers so i think both clemson and alabama fans probably experiencing something somewhat similar right now in terms of trying to adjust their expectations to to something close to reality i i think you're right and I, i'm going to start by saying something that Clemson fans won't like everything ends eventually, right? Every dynasty crumbles. That's what, what makes them dynasties. They have a rise and they fall. And again, I'm, I don't know that Clemson is, is done. Like I, I, in fact, I don't think they are. I still think they're going to be really good. And I would not be surprised at all if they're in the playoff next year, I mean, who the heck knows with rosters and all that stuff, but everything ends eventually. And, and you know, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I'm talking with plenty of Florida, Florida State, Miami fans over the years. It, sometimes it, you can't predict when it happens. It just kind of does where you, you you miss on a quarterback or two in a row and you can't refill that. Or like you said, with with Alabama's receivers, they had an 
you can't replicate that every year with a Jerry Judy and a Ruggs and, and, and Devontae Smith, who's the best receiver I've ever seen with my own eyes. Like you, you can't do that every year. You, you just can't. So eventually that's going to slip while you have a, an issue here. And, and, you know, Bama in particular losing all the assistance right over the years, you, you, maybe you can keep restocking it, but probably not. Eventually you're going to guess wrong. I think it's that way at Clemson too, right? Where they had that staff continuity for so long and then, Venables goes and, and, and Jeff goes and, and, and Tony Elliott goes and nobody blames him. They got a great job. Good, 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 good luck. But things just change and things slip and, and you can't sustain it forever. And I think that's the, uh, the unfortunate reality of this. And I don't know where this all ends, but eventually it will end for Clemson and, and they'll go back to the pack just like Florida State has done, just like Miami has done. Matt Baker, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Uh, this was an excellent conversation. Really appreciate it. You got it. Thanks. If you're in the Eastern Midlands and PD area and you're in any way interested in buying and selling a home, commercial property, land, need to consider reaching out to Uptown Realty. They're based out of Sumter and run by a friend of mine, Patrick Enzer, big Clemson guy, used to cover the Tigers in a newspaper capacity, longtime supporter of Tiger Illustrated, longtime listener to the Dubcast. The home buying process should be an enjoyable experience, so let Patrick and his staff do all the heavy lifting. All you got to do is pick up the phone and call 803-774-0435 or go to Uptown Realty SC. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parm, Smith & Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced, professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326 3507. When you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business, open the door to more with Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Their local experience team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details. Harris handles every step of your renovation process, whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational setting, like some of the positively stunning work they've done at Clemson University. Go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from Harris Home and Harris commercial okay joined by eli letterman it is that that's the right that's the correct pronunciation right okay of the tulsa worlds uh chatted with you over the summer first of all thank you for joining us oh i'm happy to do it um yeah we as you said we chatted in the summer kind of i've been following you for a while but we became acquainted while i was writing uh kind of a preseason profile on brent venables here in uh in norman did I share with you, I can't remember, I did a podcast interview a few weeks ago with Tyler Venables. I meant to share that with you. I don't think you did. Um, wow. It was, uh, it, it was really profound. Um, and I know you interviewed Tyler mm-hmm. for that article, sort of detailing Brent's life story. And that's actually how I came up with the idea. I, I need to maybe try to get Tyler on a... <laughs> a, a, you know, a more a lengthier sit down than just a press conference type thing. And he was uh, just to refresh your memory, if it, it might not need refreshing. But the thing that stuck out to me was uh, as he and I were talking about, hey, you know, your sisters are going through the exact same thing that you and your brother went through when you all left Norman. 
um, to come to Clemson, just totally out of your comfort zone, you know, to a whole new world. I think Tyler was 10 at the time. And when the topic came up of the the death of Austin Box, mm-hmm. followed closely within 24 hours by the death of Brent's brother, Kirk, to alcoholism, Tyler was having a trouble holding together. Um, it was still a very deeply emotional thing for him, even though he was only 10 at the time, and even though that was 12 years ago. Or not 12 years ago, I guess 10 years ago. So anyway, that was, uh, I'll have to share that with you, but that was... Please do. Yeah, I, I was just really sort of taken by by that. Um, I don't know how, what, what your conversations with him were like uh, over the summer. Well, it was funny. So, I, you know, I was kind of, this the story ultimately that I wrote was centered on how the, the 10 years at Clemson really changed Brent Venables in, in a lot more than just a football sense. I mean, he's come mm-hmm. here and is, is absolutely pouring a lot of, Dabo, I think, into this program at Oklahoma. But from a personal standpoint, a lot changed for Brent Venables at, at Clemson and uh, in, in a lot of ways. And But talking to Tyler um, was really interesting because I spoke to both him and Jake Venables. Mm-hmm. And what I was told beforehand, and it, it certainly reflected in our chats, was that Jake Venables is the more reserved of the sons, the one who probably more reflects Brent Venables today. And that Tyler is the one who sort of has maybe a bit more of this freewheeling, um, <laughs> uh, just a, a more of a, a different demeanor and apparently a demeanor that reflects more of what Brent was like as a player at Kansas State when he was in his younger days. And so it's a pretty interesting contrast. And I'd imagine that, um, and, and it was Tyler certainly who kind of had a lot more, uh, was maybe more open about uh, you know, the, how the family life changed in those 10 years. And so you, you pick a starting point, 2010. Um, that fall was really, uh, or excuse me, 2011. 2011. Yeah. Dates are hard at this point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that, that kicked off, I think, you know, right there with, with those two deaths in quick succession and then the family moves. And um, obviously, you know, just in any kid's life, those, those years, you know, 10 to, to 22 or, or wherever he's at now are pretty transformative anyway, but I think for the family, certainly for Brent Venables, but on the whole, that, that past decade was really uh, probably, you know, the most transformative for the family. And now here they are entering a new phase. And as you point out um, for the two daughters, they're exactly where their brothers were uh, in terms of a move at a a similar age, you know, this one back to Norman. Um, But, but that looking at it through that lens is pretty fascinating. I laughed when you said freewheeling because it has literally been freewheeling with Tyler uh, because a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, he suffered injuries in a moped accident. Uh, we heard that from Brent. He scarred up his face. Um, and as I'm talking to him, he's like, yeah, I've learned learned some lessons at that. I need to, you know, slow down. I need to pay more attention, probably not be looking around, probably need to look <laughs> ahead of me. He lists like four or five things. And, he, and I said, is a helmet wearing a helmet on that list? And he goes, Oh yeah, maybe so. <laughs> I mean, he went face first into a bumper, uh, pretty wild, but that guy played with a, he's played with all sorts of injuries. He's a, he's a pretty tough son of a gun. Um, I guess we'll just stay on the theme of, of you sort of going to Brent's backstory over the summer. How did you get the idea? And then how did you approach it with Brent sort of behind the scenes with, Hey, I want to tell this, 
and what type of, uh, how open was he with you and uh, sort of um, just in that interview process? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, Brent comes back here and there's so many ways to attack it um, in terms of you could dive into his time at OU. If you're, if you're going to write kind of that big preseason feature on the first year coach with all his history, um, you can you can dive into to his, his decade at, at Oklahoma from uh, when, when he showed up with Bob Stoops to when he left for Clemson. Or, or you can look at it a few different ways. But, you know, football, you know, for me, I'm a college football writer and I'll say this only fascinates me so much as, as people do. Um, and getting to to tell their stories, and there was I knew there was no way that those ten years at Clemson hadn't changed him in some ways. Again, away from football, and so that was the thread I just started pulling on, and I had a knew of a few of his friends from here in Norman from his time there, and just started chatting with them. Got in touch with the family, and I was really prepared to to write it as you are. I think sometimes with these stories, without Brent Venables, I wasn't counting on you know getting anything other than you know him at the podium. But um, I did. It was training camp, and I just kind of planted the seed with uh, with Mike Houck, who, who kind of runs the media relations at, at OU. And I just said, look, if Brent is training camp, I know once we get going here, there's no way. But if he's got some time, I'm writing this one way or another. I'd really love to get his perspective. Uh, and it was a Saturday afternoon. I was actually uh, sitting at the pool with some friends, and I get a call with a number that pops up with some South Carolina digits. <laughs> And, uh, so I raced away, got to my computer and, and Brent and I talked for probably 35 minutes, which far exceeded my expectations. I think I said, I just needed 10. Um, and we just chatted, you know, there were certain things he wasn't like super thrilled to dive into nothing. You know, he was happy to talk about his, his past growing up. And I think, you know, what really struck me most was, um, how he, and you covered this, um, you shoot, you were the one who uncovered a lot of this when you spoke to him for your series, um, a number of years back now where he came to terms with his childhood, I think for a long time, you know, he, to quote him, to quote Brent, um, he was ashamed there. He, he felt like he had to be ashamed of his childhood. Um, and it was in that program and with Dabo and just the kind of, the sort of environment it was that he not just came to terms with it, but became comfortable speaking about it. Uh, even Jake and Tyler kind of, you know, heard him talk more about it than they had in their whole lives while they were at Clemson. And, uh, and that was probably the most fundamental personal change, I think, for Brent Venables um, in his time there, which is his, his relationship with the past changed. Um, and, you know, other places, I think that the program with Dabo, you know, where, where the story begins, if, you, if anyone out there goes back and, and reads it, is, is these Sunday mornings uh, with the family. Um, essentially, Dabo had this policy of, you know, don't, you don't have to be in there crunching tape Sunday morning at 6 a.m. Come in at, 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 you know, in the afternoon, but in the morning, go to church with your family, spend time with them, all this. And um, Tyler, that was the memories he had would, would be Sunday mornings when his dad would get them all out of bed and he'd have breakfast on the table. Um, got the detail that Brent just loves vegan sausage. Um, <laughs> and I thought about that. And, you know, Jake, or uh, excuse me, Tyler just said they are nasty. He's like, there are these nasty brown slabs. And I was like, so, and he's like, but I bet you my dad has, you know, six boxes of them in his fr- uh, freezer in, in Norman. So I got to ask Brent about that. And he got a, he was, it was what I started with. And usually when you start with something left field, you just get, I could see Brent on the other end, just shaking his head. Um, and, you know, Brent will tell you, you got to just put condiments all over them, but they're a good source of protein. I, I didn't, I didn't experiment. I, I decided not thought about going to the store and finding him for myself, but I spared myself that. But yeah, it really was. That was the the story I told. It wasn't about the defenses they developed at Clemson as, as prolific as they were and how much, obviously that's played into where Brent is now. I mean, he, he's not 
probably not in this head coaching job necessarily. Maybe you would have picked up another along the way, but without the success they had, but this was about the, the change Brent experienced, uh, in, in his decade at, at Clemson personally. And that was sort of the thread I pulled on. I'm really interested to get a feel for the vibe of the fan base right now, but I guess for proper context uh, and perspective, we have to go back to when he was hired and it on the, on the positive side, meaning positive in his favor, it's okay. He, he's, he's, you know, part of the family coming back home. Um, He's not going to, jilt you in the middle of the night and leave to go somewhere else uh he preaches defense he preaches culture a lot of these things that were probably perhaps lacking under lincoln riley but the negative uh i guess part of the negative is 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 well he didn't brent didn't exactly leave under the rosiest of circumstances because he had a tough year in 11 against some some great offenses and great quarterbacks and so you had some folks who were wanting to help him pack his bags at that time. And then the guy who he perceived, who he succeeded actually had some pretty good teams and was a yeah. pretty, is a, has proved to be a pretty good coach at his current stop. So the line between, you know, sort of universal support and hunky dory vibes and Holy crap, what do we get ourselves into? It's almost like a, the best, and you might've, this might have made the rounds. This analogy, but almost like the uh, when you're dating, you know, a like rebound uh, <laughs> a relationship after you get dumped. Um, what is the feeling right now with them at five and five? Because this is just not something that they're used to around there. Yeah, that's probably the the starting point. There's a few starting points, but one is that people around here just are not used to this. This is, I mean, I every, a lot of the history this year, just different stats and stuff, goes back to the late 90s and the John Blake era. That's the last time OU lost like this. And, and if you look at, you know, you take the 30,000-foot view, they don't lose like this for very often and for very long in Norman. So that's even struck me this year. Just, you know, if you in a lot of other college towns, 3-3 three and three in October, it's not the end of the world, right? Even some, yeah. some fan bases will tell you, hey, we're halfway to a bowl game. But here, that was not the case, and is not the case, and uh, and so certainly, this is not where people, a lot of people, expect them to be. But going back to last December, Brent Venables comes back, and I, I don't know if you could have written a better, you know, movie script of everything you laid out. I mean, this is a guy who is rooted in the last national title they won, all this Bob Stoops history, great defenses, went and did his thing at, at Clemson and brought a lot of promise back with them. It was a, a big homecoming, and that really extended all the way through training camp because I think this this last offseason is probably a lesson in all the juice you can get when you're not playing football games. I mean, all the hype was there. There was a lot of probably external reasons for, for wanting to push that hype too, not internally with the program, but the fan base after Lincoln Riley left, they were looking for just anyone to get excited about, and Brent Venables was the perfect guy. Uh, but I think ultimately, and I don't know how much of this can you can pin on Brent, comes down to expectations. And uh, the fact is that you know the expectations were high. They came into the year ranked in the top ten, won their first three games, and really put on a show at Nebraska that I think had people nationally taking some notice. But the reality probably always was that this was a team that was was largely gutted in the off season 
Lincoln Riley departures, guys who transferred out. A lot of the defense went to the NFL. And so if you really, you know, if you could have gotten that away from the hype, this was probably a bit predictable. Um, and I don't know. I, one question I've got is if, if Brent Venables and this staff knew that in August or not, I, I think they'd probably tell you if, you know, in a, in a really honest moment, they're surprised at how hard it's been. I think Brent has been surprised at how hard it's been with this group. And that might just be, you know, that the growing pains of year one and trying to implement a system with a group that's, you know, been conditioned another way for the last three years. But really between, I think the personnel Maybe between you know just needing the time to implement things, it's been harder than Brent Venables thought. And I think a lot of people, even if you had tempered expectations, would have expected them to be in a slightly different spot this time of year late in the season. When I watch them on defense, I mean, we're talking about a defense that has been sort of the Achilles heel for years uh, in Norman. I guess Grinch made some progress, but like you mentioned, they lost a lot off that defense from last year. But when I watched them earlier in the year, and I have not watched them recently, but the TCU game and the Texas games, the mis- the, the breakdowns, at least as I saw it from the outside looking in, it's not like they're just getting blown off the ball and mashed down the field and so uh, getting outclassed. I see a safety just running the wrong way and being a total bust on the back end and then a defensive end, outside linebacker, not properly play in the zone read so that suggests more coaching and so i'm just curious how you sort of um evaluate it sort of in the balance between okay are they really that talented versus are they being coached well yeah i think that's the question you know those the break the breakdowns you're talking about tcu texas the early october ones those were glaring that was you look up on a play and somehow a TCU wide receiver is 20 yards beyond the secondary. And you're just wondering how that can happen. Those have dissipated a bit. I'd say that the, uh, on the whole this year, you know, in two games, whatever the outcomes are coming up, if you ask me the biggest Achilles heel for this defense, it's going to be the run, the run defense. Okay. They haven't been able to stop anybody and everybody's been able to run on them. I mean, they made a uh, squirrel Williams, the running back at, uh, at, Baylor, who had done very little in his career before coming to Norman a few weeks ago, he looked like Adrian Peterson. It was uh, incredible. So they've made a lot of running games, even you know, modest to mediocre running games, look quite good. And so that's been the the big sticking point. But you're right. I mean, the the breakdowns seemed very uncharacteristic, and this run defense has seemed uncharacteristic. And we are, I think, the part that would probably frustrate Brent Venables most and frustrates fans a lot is that. Progress hasn't been there. I mean, they could be if they were five and five, but you were seeing some progress, especially on defense, because that's what Brent Venables will be judged against. I think you could stomach it more, but it's the same issues that have been haunting them since weeks four and five that are haunting them still in week twelve, and and that's where the questions do revolve around: is it the coaching? Uh, does he have to evaluate, you know, the coordinator spot or some of those assistant positions? Or is it simply a, a defense that certainly has been robbed of its depth and you can't understate just how important that is. And when you see them fading late in games, um, there's that, that, that might explain it for you is that they've, they just do not have the depth. That's a lot of what they lost on top of just some big names on the defense. They lost depth. Uh, but uh, you know, something would tell me that it's probably a combination here of, of some of the coaching and maybe this system that, you know, Brent Venables has dug in on when they were struggling this year, you know, he essentially said, 
I know this process. I know this system. It's been proven over 20 years. We're sticking with it, um, which I think is a good, good enough bet to make. I don't think anyone else, any of us can argue against that, but there's probably some combination here of the, the coaching and the system. And then the personnel that's, that's provided for a pretty unbrent Venables like defense in Norman this season. It's funny how college football followers, when we were looking from the outside, looking in like casual viewers, we take little pieces of what we've seen, and we judge based on that. So when I just said a minute ago, oh, yeah, it seemed like seemed to me it was more players being in the wrong places and just these wide open swaths of of space that TCU and Texas were running through. Well, that's just what I remembered, and I haven't even watched them recently. Then I pull up the stats after I said, oh, it's not like they're just being mashed up and down the field. I see <laughs> Kansas State. 275 rushing yards, TCU yep. 361, Texas 296, Baylor 281, West Virginia 203. So actually, it maybe kind of is like they're getting mashed and just pushed around, at least according to the rushing uh, defense stats. Yeah, I mean, they basically, you know, it, it went from, I think, early in conference play, you were just seeing them getting exposed deep. Now it's like those, you know, death by a thousand cuts, um, or sometimes fewer because, even you know, the run defense, whether they're getting beat, you know, for eight yards of carry, you're just giving up big busts. And, you know, that that's happening. And that's what I think if we're talking about depth, what wears down a defense, it's just a team running all over you um, and, and consistently doing it. So they've, they've significantly struggled there. And again, it, you go back, is it personnel? Is it coaching? Is it some combination of the two? You know, if, if the guys, if, if defenders are making the same mistakes, 10 games in, is that on the defenders? Is that on the coaching? You know, I throw my hands up and say, I, I don't know. I'll let Brent Venables, you know, someone like him try to explain it to me um, if, if he will, which, you know, hit or miss depending on the week. But, um, you know, this, the bottom line is this has not been this year, at least the defense that's been that that his return promised um, and kind of has has me, you know, looking at some of the Clemson stats and seeing, you know, he there. He never had a defense, I don't think, statistically that that landed here. Um, the, the way the Sooners are. I mean, right now they're 76 in pass defense, 120th in run defense, and 94th in, in scoring defense. There, there was not, a, even in 2012, that yep. first season, uh, they were not there, one of his defenses. So the fan base after Lincoln Riley leaves abruptly for Southern Cal is traumatized. <laughs> I mean, is that is that too strong? I don't think so. This is, uh, if you want to go back to kind of a dating reference, this is the, the good looking guy or girl who's never been broken up with. Yeah. And it happens to them and they're like, what just happened to me? That, that was the vibe here. They don't, that doesn't happen to Oklahoma. Um, it hasn't. And that, yeah, that's part of kind of being, I think in the, the class of programs they're in, however you want to define it, top programs in the country, they don't have people walk out on them often. So that, that might be a good way of putting it. I don't think they're past it yet completely. So, in light of that, you know, you spent a whole off season with Oklahoma fans totally demonizing Lincoln, and uh, and then of course welcoming the new guy who's, as we said, uh, within the family, and he's going to restore a lot of the things that were uh, leaky, I guess, under under Riley. Now that we're in mid-November and Southern Cal doing quite well. Uh, and Oklahoma struggling. What? How? What is the? I guess the way to phrase the question is: Do you have a read on 
what the lunatic fringe is saying, what the more moderate fans are saying. Like, are they saying we, you know, we got to cut bait on the lunatic fringe and the moderate folks are saying, you know what, we need to give them some time to make some corrections and make some staff changes. What is the vibe, you know, with those sort of degrees of, of fanaticism, if that makes sense? I mean, you kind of, you pegged it there. There's, there's certainly, uh, I like that phrase too, lunatic fringe, the, the social media, uh, you know, the folks in that, that can warp the overall view. You think everybody thinks that way because of what you see on Twitter, but there's certainly segments of the fan base that just think, you know, he's not the guy. I think some people, and I, I just think this is misguided who view him as a, you know, I, I saw a tweet this week that I can encapsulate some of it that, they need a thinking, uh, you know, a, a thinking man's head coach, not a vein popping guy. I, I think any characterization of Brent Venables is not a smart football mind is an ignorant viewpoint. Uh, but there, there's certainly some of that. There are some people who think they've missed entirely and that it's time to cut bait. And they see that looming SEC clock coming and think rather than waiting a few years, that times now, I think more of the rational part of the fan base and probably the majority of the fan base is pretty stunned by this year, but they've got some Lincoln hate to lean on. I, I do think, you know, right or wrong, or if they're maybe rationalizing, there is a segment of the fan base that looks at, at the fact that OU quite often in the playoffs, you know, they'd get there and then they'd get smoked. They feel that that, you know, they think Lincoln Riley was a loser because he got him there and then got smoked, um, typically by teams with far superior talent. Um, and they also feel that in the last few years that the talent and the program itself had deteriorated a bit under Lincoln Riley. That might be fair. Um, so there's a, a viewpoint of let's trust the process and let's let Brent Venables, who's recruited pretty well to this point, we'll see if they get that class to signing day. There's a viewpoint of, you know, trust the process, low and slow, let's get it there. I'd imagine, though, if, if next October we're not seeing big strides, that's when even those more rational folks will will turn the heat up a little bit. You mentioned the vein popping thing. And, <laughs> you know, the fascinating thing to me, watching him this season on the sidelines, and it's something we talked about that we were both fascinated by coming into the season, was what is his demeanor going to be like? Is he really going to be able to be that detached, sort of methodical, you know, reserved CEO type? And I've actually been impressed and maybe a little surprised at how, um, you know, even keeled he has appeared, but ha- have I been missing anything? Have there been vein popping moments at times that I haven't seen? No, he's been good. I think in, in August we asked him about a get that guy. Who is he going to have? <laughs> and he said, I don't think I need one. And I remember thinking there, like, you sure about it? Like, yeah, Cause you know, it, everyone had seen him on the sidelines I and mean, that was the thing. Uh, but he has been, I, I think, largely reserved. And I don't know if um, that's just advice he's gotten from Dabo and Bob Stoops and Bill Snyder. I mean, he certainly leaned on them for a lot of things this fall. But he has largely largely been more reserved, at least on the sidelines. Certainly, I mean, he'll get hyped and you'll see him, um, you know, kind of from a coaching standpoint, you know, scolding a guy to, to correct a mistake. But he is not, that has not been any kind of issue. You could argue maybe they haven't played enough games that have been close enough. I mean, they've, they've had a bunch of one score losses, but uh, maybe the games haven't had the stakes for him to really get to that point. Uh, but something tells me it doesn't matter if he's playing UTEP in week two or week one or playing for a title. He's, he's pretty jacked up either way, but he's, he's on the sidelines at least held it, held it reserved. 
deserved thought, enough. Yeah, I thought I read somewhere that there have been occasions where he has at least appeared to take over the defensive play calling. Have you observed that in some instances where he's been like, "All right, screw this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start taking over some uh, this defense during some stretches." Um, that's the hard one to say because when we've talked to, I mean, between him and Ted Roof, you'll get some pretty mum voices on what they're doing on game day. The, the stated system is that, you know, Ted Roof is calling the plays uh, and that there's constant communication. But you, you kind of wonder, you wonder about that. And I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to know uh, watching from up top, um, you know, how the system changes. But I, I do think as you look toward this offseason, that's and if you ask the fan base, it's certainly where they think the first thing to look at is play calling. Brent Venables' role in it, and if Ted Roof is really the guy as a defensive coordinator, I, I don't think you could argue whether you bring Ted Roof back or not that it bears reflection because the defense, again, has been the consistent Achilles heel of this team. And so whether you're keeping the same staff but reevaluating the communication, we've asked uh, several times this season, you know, have you thought about changes on that front? I mean, even moving Ted Roof down from the, the booth to the sideline, things like that, and they've held pretty strong and true We'll see what they they do this offseason, but I think that that would be the first place you would expect them to evaluate is is kind of the play calling and what they do. But I, I couldn't tell you mostly because they wouldn't tell you officially if, if anything has changed or even in game on on the play calling front. What does he say when you ask about possible changes to the staff in the offseason? Uh, we haven't even gotten there yet. I'd gotcha. imagine if you know if it even came up, it would be shot down pretty quick. They they are uh, certainly a pretty reserve staff even it's it's a funny setup they've got you can tell me what they do at clemson maybe this reflects that but uh, we're getting coordinators on monday morning only about 48 hours after we've talked to them after the game and then brent goes tuesday so you'll get the coordinators who who have a lot of things they quote unquote can't talk about i'll leave it to coach um and then so it gets left to brent and that's an interesting media setup i think for a lot of us um because shoot the first the person you want kicking off the week and who can address everything is the head coach. Um, and so that, that's like one interesting element. And so you'll, you'll kind of hear on, on something like play calling something from Ted roof on a Monday. And then you get to ask Brent about it the next day. Um, and that's, you know, where maybe you can see some of those cracks, but uh, as far as addressing plans for the future, they've been pretty quiet about that so far. That's exactly the format that has been at Clemson for forever. Really Mondays coordinators and then Tuesday Dabo. That's. I mean, is there? What's the thinking behind that at Clemson? Or I don't. I don't know what the thinking is, other than that's the way they've always done it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it. Maybe. I don't know. A decade ago, maybe they did it somewhat differently, but I don't really mind it. I'm just grateful to get an opportunity to to talk to the the, the coordinators, uh, and especially well, be there. It, what's that? I'm with you there. Yeah. You don't get that everywhere. And we're able to, you know, they're they're very open about, you know, if you want to pull them aside after the group to ask them a specific question, they're totally cool with that, which is which is very helpful. Um, I don't know if y'all are able to do that. Uh, there again, I say reserved between Jeff Levy and Ted Roof. You definitely got um, some quieter coordinators there. I think the the funny end of it will be that it'll come Tuesday, and you'll want to address things from. The, the previous game and Brent will kind of feel like, well, let's move on, especially when it's been, they've come off those losses. And it's, so it's a little bit of a, a catch 22 there. If, you know, you're waiting until Tuesday 
Um, and, and we're still trying to get to the bottom of, of some of these, you know, especially on the defense, these debacles. But at that point, we're already on to a new game week. Um, so it's been interesting. I think the biggest note, if, if people in, uh, out there are curious about kind of the, the media relationship, the, the most fascinating part has been Brent's post games. Um, early in the, I think the first game, he might have taken 90 minutes to get to the podium. <laughs> That's just like Davo. <laughs> Man. Because um, I think, you know, I don't, and I don't think it's intentional. I just think coming off the field, I mean, he, I watched him do it after that first game. If there's a recruit, then a military member he's got to thank for his service, then some boosters, then he's got to talk to Joe Castiglione, and eventually he makes his way. And they've, they've sort of um, redirected how, how that post game is going. And I think uh, certainly the last home game against Baylor, he got to the podium in record time. Um, but yes, that, that has been the most common theme, I think. Uh, and, and certainly shocked some folks in Texas, Red River, um, where typically the losing team goes first. And, and Texas got up there and they just said, well, we're not waiting. So Pete Sarkeesian and them did their thing. And then we waited probably another 30, 40 minutes. And you had all this whole Texas media contingent just sitting there shaking their head. Well, here, oh, man. So they have a, they let the fans onto the field after games. And so the team hangs out on the field, you know, doing autographs and pictures and stuff for a long time. And then they go into the locker room and Dabo, of course, has a lot of things to say to his team after a game. And then he goes and showers and uh, gets back in his suit that he wore to the game. And I learned years ago to use that time to my advantage. And so literally between the time that the clock hits zero and when he stands in front of a microphone, it's easily more than an hour. And so, and we do get players and such and assistants, but in with you know, in between. But I'll sit there and spend twenty minutes, twenty to twenty-five minutes. I've written my game column uh, right as after the clock strikes zero, and then quite often I've written what I've had to say for my Sunday opener that we we usually write early you know first thing sunday morning so i'm basically by the time dabo is at the microphone i'm usually basically done with everything i'm just i hate just sitting there just doing nothing for that that amount of time so i finally wised up and and decided okay i'm gonna use this to my advantage yeah, I think uh, like many things, it, it's clear that that's a, a Dabo remnant that's that's remaining. <laughs> Maybe we'll get better here at using that time. <laughs> Has he? What about him? Okay, so another element of his time here as defensive coordinator was he would not keep the same schedule on showing up when he during the time frame that during the same time frame on Mondays when he would visit with us so we would have uh the offensive coordinator come at 11:30 on the dot every monday and then most of the time we'd be waiting past 1:30 or 2 o'clock for Brent to <laughs> to show up yeah. I'm curious have there been variances in in that type of thing with him as a head coach on uh changing the times of press conferences and things like that there have nothing too crazy i mean his, his scheduled times tuesdays at 11:15 and i'll say earlier in the season you might have we probably waited a couple times till about eleven forty-five, and 
from the sound of it, it's just, you know, he's in some meeting locked in on, you know, whatever they're talking about with his staff and looking at, you know, it's got film on the screen or something like that. And just pulling him away when he's when he's locked in like that is the challenge. Uh, I can also say that he's become more prompt as the as the record has looked more like five and five than three and oh. Uh, <laughs> but that that is all everything I think you guys came to know has, has remained um, for better and worse about Brent Venables and um, you know, the clock, I think, I think just wrangling him to a, to a degree. And again, I say for better and worse, I don't think it's, there's, a, there's no malintent there. I think sure. it can simply be when he's in a meeting, um, you know, the clock disappears and, and he's thinking about football. Uh, I think, I think that's probably part of what has made him so successful. Last question. Uh, one of the fascinating things to me about fanaticism is that when things are going well, you have fans that are, they get ticked off when you say something that might be construed as negative or when a national media member says, yeah, I'm just not sold on this Oklahoma team slash Clemson team. But boy, when things start turning sour, you're being asked, why aren't you grilling the coaches more? And why are you so positive? And do you, do you, have you experienced the same thing uh, with some of the fans, some of your readers uh, there as things have sort of uh, been up and down. Yeah, certainly a bit. Um, I think on the Ted roof front, there's a lot of folks, I mean, who either think, you know, why isn't Brent, some folks will, I want Brent up in the boot calling de- defense, which is funny as you point out earlier that they were ready to pack his bags a decade ago. Some of them. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean that hear plenty from the fans and, and, you know, a, a lot of them though, with, I think, you know, justified questions and that's where, you know, I won't, not that they've been withholding or, um, or, or anything like that with the media, but when, when the losses are mounting and the struggles have continued and kind of looked the same, I think that same message of, well, we're just returning to the drawing board, going to keep coaching these guys and keep working. I think that part has gotten a little old. I think the, the fan base has wanted more answers. You know, I don't know what a, a coach like Brent Venables or Ted Roof or Jeff Lebby should say up there. Um, you can't in week six of a college football season say, yeah, this group is hopeless. I'm not saying that's mm-hmm. the case, but I, I think they've maybe at times, you know, just been a little too, you know, the, the default has been, well, we're just going to keep coaching them. It's another week, fresh week, new opportunity. I think that message with the fan base has gotten wearying at times, particularly as, you know, it's it wasn't just that blip in October. Uh, they came out of the bye week, beat Iowa State, and now it's two straight losses in games that, again, reflected a lot of the same struggles they were facing in, in October. And, and that feeling of, well, this not, you know, those things you keep talking about coaching up are not getting better. So what gives, I think that's the part that where the, the impatience has shown. Wait, there are fans who want Brent, the head coach in the box. Well, you talk about the lunatic fringe. I think, uh, <laughs> I, I certainly what? think within there, there's a lot of, a lot of interesting ideas for Brent to consider if you'd like to. <laughs> that is a new one. I've never heard that one. Wanting the head coach to be up in the box. <laughs> Eli, I know you're an extremely busy man. Um, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. This has been great. My pleasure. Okay. Really interesting stuff on both counts. Uh, insights that you can only get uh, from folks who are there with, with boots on the ground in both Tampa and Norman. Really appreciate both guests for joining us also appreciate of course the support 
of our very loyal sponsors for helping make this happen. And then finally, last but certainly not least, thanks to every one of you for hitting that play button. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.